But you can turn over to Romans chapter 9. And don't forget, we have the barbecue afterwards. So we're looking forward to that. And um, uh, after the uh, communion time, I have another little video to show while I can go get ready for the baptism. So um, just to let you know. But today we're looking at uh, celebrating another message in celebrating God's sovereignty. But today we're looking at the aspect of God's mercy being displayed as he provides salvation for us, which is such a blessing. Um, And so we want to look at Romans chapter 9, and uh, I'll begin in verse 23, uh, or 22 actually, and read down through chapter 29. So you can follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the seat around you or in front of you. Uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people... I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very name where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, and if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So you might read that text and go, what does this have to do with God's sovereignty? Well, we're going to share a little bit about that today. And I'm hoping we'll get through this uh, message. We have about 45 minutes to do it, but um, so I'm going to move rather quickly. I want to start off with a question. Some of us have probably been saved rather long, been walking with the Lord for many years. And I want to ask you this question. Does the gospel, does the fact that the good news that God saved you from sin, from judgment, he saved you by his great love, by his mercy, by his grace, does it cause your hearts to rejoice and your soul to be uh, flooded with gratitude? Does the fact that you could have been one of the vessels of wrath that we just read about in the Bible, prepared for destruction, but instead you are now a vessel of his mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory, does it ever cause you to think, why me? Why did God save me? If you grew up in a Christian home or you grew up in a Christian family, maybe you've been saved for a long time, whatever the the case may be, We face the danger of growing complacent, growing comfortable with God's grace. Um, We become accustomed to his grace so that we might even take it for granted. Um, I want to share with you, and these aren't in your notes, I don't think. No, they aren't. Um, This is just kind of introduction, but signs of complacency, signs that maybe you're taking God's grace and the gospel for granted. First of all, they're up on the screen, I think. You grumble about life's trials, forgetting what God has done, the greatest thing possible, imaginable, sending his son to die in your place, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So we get sidetracked. We begin to grumble about the trials that come into our lives. We forget what God has graciously done in our lives. Secondly, you become focused on accumulating the world's stuff. I mean, we all got probably cupboards and garages and all full of stuff. Um, We're laying up treasures on earth rather than in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 tells us not to do that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. We need to be reminded of that. Especially now when they're coming out with a new thing every week. I just saw a cool little deal the other day. Man, I was so tempted to buy it. I don't know what it's called, but it, it's you, you cut a watermelon in half, and it's this knife where you just kind of you just run the thing through, and it pulls out a perfect piece of watermelon without the rind. I just thought, man, that that's ingenious. But I didn't buy it, dear. But they're always coming out with stuff, and we feel, man, we got to have that thing. Thirdly, we feel. We think that you'll find contentment in these things, in the things of the world, rather than in the joy of your salvation. First John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, everything, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, guess what, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you want to abide forever? Do you want to outlast your car and your house and all the goodies we have down here? Are you more concerned about your eternal state than you are here in this place on the peninsula? Then do the will of God. Next thing, we begin to envy the wicked. (laughs) Boy, this hits me sometimes. We think somehow that sin will satisfy our needs. We forget the horrible, corrupting effects of sin upon our lives. And Proverbs speaks of this. This is something that is is very common. We begin to look at everybody living in a debauchery and how well they're doing. We think, wow, maybe I'm tempted to do the same. Proverbs 23, 17 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Proverbs 24, 1 says, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Proverbs 24, 19, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. Look, I'm probably as frustrated as anybody else with what's going on in our country right now, politically and other things. But you know what? I'm not going to fret over it. Because I know God will have his way ultimately. And, and, and the people that look like they're getting ahead now will eventually stand before the Almighty God and have to give an answer. The next thing, you begin to justify our sins. We blame others. Um, or even God, for our own disobedience. That's, that's crucial. I can't tell you the amount of times that, that anger or, or sin has welled up in my heart, and I pointed my finger at my wife, and you're the reason! <laughs> and God reminds me, wait, no, she's not the reason. It's you. Just admit it. You're the one with the problem here. Deal with it. Proverbs 19.3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. You don't want to get to that point. You don't want to get to the point where you're trying to justify your sin and then you're shaking your hand at God. The Bible says, just do what God asks you to do. The way he asks you to do it. And then also, we become indifferent to sharing the gospel with the lost. I've seen this happen a lot of times with Christians. Matter of fact, And the scriptures point to just the opposite. Paul, we looked at it in verse 3 of chapter 9 where Paul says, Boy, I wish that I myself could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's the burden Paul heard. That's an impossibility. You can't switch out your salvation for somebody else's. But you know what? That showed the, the, the condition of Paul's heart. Paul was looking at his Jewish brothers and he said, Man, I wish I could give up my salvation so you could be saved. Or there in verse uh, 1 of, of chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the lost, is that they may be saved. They may be saved. Do you still have that burden in your heart for the lost? Sometime in the future, uh, Brother Dave Bowen's going to bring a, a message dealing with the compassion that we need for the lost. 
And uh, that's one thing we never want to lose. We don't ever want to forget. Next thing there, you forget that those without Christ are lost and headed for judgment. You know, the, the one thing that is, is tragic in all this is some, sometimes bad things happen in our world. And sometimes out of the mouths of professing Christians comes some of the, the, the most horrible words concerning these tragedies. Um... You've probably seen it in the news. You've probably heard people even give credence about this shooting a couple weeks ago in Orlando. That somehow these people, because they were homosexual in this nightclub, they deserved what they got. That's not from the heart of God. That's not something that we can even justify as a Christian, even going there, even thinking that. Because you know what? The Bible says that they are lost. They're, they're headed for judgment. They're, they're, they're sinners just like you and I. And Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at, the same, at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. He's saying, don't you get up on your high and mighty horse and look down at the world and say, oh, look at how they're acting. I would never do that. I'm a Christian. Brothers and sisters, you know, my heart's as dark as anybody else's. And sometimes my mind, my heart goes in places that I would never even want to confess, but to God alone. We're all in this together. See? And, and that's where we never want to forget that, you know, the lost people in this world, in this community around us, don't need our judgment. They need the gospel. They need to hear that God can save them from their sin. That Christ is the hope for forgiveness. That he could restore everything the way it should be in their relationship with God. And so we all need to constantly preach the gospel. We need to live the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the wonderful blessings that God's mercy has on us through Christ. Well, here in our text, Paul continues this response to the problem that was actually raised earlier in the chapter. And the problem was this. If God's promises to save his chosen people, Israel, are good then why are most Jews rejecting Christ? That's the question. God said he's going to save all Israel. Well, most most Jews are not saved. What's the problem here? He's shown that God's word of promise has not failed because he never promises to save all of Israel, rather that he saves a, a remnant and Paul asked that question, has God's word, word failed? Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. And so he knew that they were asking that question. Well, I want to give you seven reasons. These are from uh, Montgomery Boyce, and they actually outline chapters 9, 10, and 11 just real quickly here. God's purposes. God's word has not failed because, first of all, in chapter 9, verses 6 to 24, and we've gone through this up to this point, all whom God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. That's the bottom line. If you're part of God's elect, you will be saved. And we've gone over that in the weeks previous. Well, verse 25 to 29 The point is God has previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved and some Gentiles would be. See, this is such a radical message for the people who were reading Paul's letter because they were Jewish. And they're thinking, hey, as Jews, man, we are somebody. We are God's chosen people. And so we don't need all this other stuff. We're just, we just kind of sit back and kind of relax. And what Paul's trying to share with them is no. You have to be saved by faith just like everybody else. 
You don't get a pass on all these things. As a matter of fact, Israel, unfortunately, did a lot of wrong with the goodness that was given to them. I mean, God gave them his word. And his word was given to them not so they could hoard it, but so that they could explain it to others and others could be saved. But they weren't a good steward of that. They totally messed up big time. And so Paul asked the question here, has God's word failed? So all Israel is not going to be saved. As a matter of fact, even some Gentiles would be. And at that, probably some of Paul's readers just passed out. They're like Gentiles being saved. I mean, Gentiles are like dogs in Israel's mind. Well, the third point here, the failure of Jews to believe was their own fault, not God's. And we're going to get into that next week. Romans 9, uh, 30 through chapter 10, verse 21. And I'm just giving you kind of an outline of where we're going to be going. Fourthly, some Jews, Paul himself was an example, have believed and have been saved. He says that in verse 1 of 11. And it's always been the case that not all Jews, but only a remnant has been saved. He explains that in verses 2 to 10 of of chapter 11. And then in 11 to 24 of chapter 11, he talks about the salvation of the Gentiles. And it's occurring now. It's intended by God to arouse Israel to envy, to jealousy. And maybe it will save some of them. And then the last point that Boyce points out, in the end, all Israel will be saved, and thus God will fulfill his promises to Israel nationally, in verses 25 to 32. That doesn't mean every individual Jew will be saved, because they're saved by grace just like we are saved by grace. But as a nation, they will be preserved. So that's the overall theme of what God has shown us. And if God had promised in advance that every individual Jew would be saved, then obviously he failed to save every individual Jew. And God would have broken his word, his promise. But that's not the case. And so now Paul turns to the Old Testament in this argument that he's having with his readers. And in verses 25 to 29, you notice as we read through there, some of this is from the Old Testament. They're from the minor prophet Hosea, and they're from the major prophet Isaiah. There's two quotations on each. Well, it's interesting that the passages on Hosea that are drawn out from the book of Hosea, from the prophet Hosea, show the acceptability of the Gentiles. Paul uses Hosea to say, you know what? These Gentiles who have come to Christ are just just as good as you Jews who have come to Christ. Don't think they're second-class citizens. So Hosea focuses on the acceptability of the Gentiles. The passages in Isaiah show the call to salvation has never included all of Israel, every individual Jew. It never has, and it never will. And so we begin to look at this, and the Hosea quotations here occur in, a, in the context of a story. So, you know, we believe the Bible should be taken in its context. So if you want to turn back to the, the book of Hosea, you can go ahead and do that. And I just want to go through this little story that these quotations are taken out of. Um, The prophet Hosea had been told to marry a woman who was going to be unfaithful to him. It it was known in advance. This is what's going to happen, but this is what you're going to do. Um, And the reason that is, is because God wanted him to provide a visible illustration of how the people of Israel have been unfaithful to God. But how God had remained faithful to them. And loved them in spite of all the infidelities that they'd gone through. And so, think about it. Here's Hosea, a prophet. And he's told to go marry a prostitute, basically. I mean, think of a, of a, of a man who is single and in the ministry. And he comes to the board of elders and he says, Yeah, you know, I just want to let you know, God told me to go marry this prostitute. I don't think that would go over too well. He'd probably get kicked out of the church, let alone have a ministry. But that's exactly what happened here. And so when you look at it in verses 2 to 3 there, Hosea married this woman. And as the verse, the verse says, 
even though the woman would eventually leave Hosea in order to go after all these other lovers, Hosea would continue to love her. And in the end would actually even draw her back to himself. And this was to be a picture of God's love for Israel. So Hosea married the woman. And it says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in the departing from the Lord. So he married Gomar. Gomer. I mean, I don't know. I hope nobody hears his name Gomer, but I, I, that's just a weird name. Gomer, Gomer Pyle. That's what I think of, Gomer Pyle, you know. That was her name, Gomer. And at this point, Gomer began to have his children. And the God, God intervened to give the children symbolic, symbolic names, which is the point of the, the, the quotation here picked up by Paul in Romans 9. The first child was a son. The name, you can see it there, is Jezreel. Jezreel is a Hebrew word that has to do with the notion of the hand used in scattering something to the wind, like this. Throwing it away, tossing it away kind of strange name to give to a a child but God gave Hosea and Gomer's son this name because the time was coming when God would scatter the people of the northern kingdom amongst the Gentile nations as punishment for all their sins and so it always has a purpose God always has a purpose and so Hosea prophesied into the reign of Hezekiah the king of Judah which was within six years of the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians. And and so this first prophecy was fulfilled almost immediately following his death. Well, the second child was a daughter. And God said, name your daughter Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ruhama is a word composed of two Hebrew words. Lo, meaning not or no. And uh, uh, ruhama meaning loved or pitied. Can you imagine naming your child not loved, not pitied? God called her the daughter, called the daughter not loved, not pitied, because during the ages in which the Jews would be scattered among the Gentiles, God would show them no pity. And would seem to have ceased loving them altogether. And then finally another son was born. And God said, called the third child Lo-Ami. And this child's name also begins with a negative, Lo, not. But the rest of the word means my people. So you're naming your child not my people. And people who continue to think of the Jews as God's specially chosen people might wonder how this could be happening. But God was saying that the time the world would come when the Jews would cease to be his people in any special sense. Today, the true people of God are neither Jews as the nation, nor Gentiles as a nation, but actually Jews and Gentiles according to the principle of election. That's who makes up the people of God today. Well, how does Hosea's story illustrate this unfailing love of God? I mean, clearly it illustrates the unfaithfulness of mankind and the way God judges sin. That's clear. But love, unfailing love? How is unfailing love of God illustrated by the words Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and and Lo-Ami? The answer is found here in Romans 9. He quotes two verses. The first is from the second chapter of Hosea, verse 23. Paul only uses the second half, but the full verse says this. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And then we'll say you are, and they will say you are my God. See, each of these children's names is discussed in that verse. And the point is that the name will be changed. 
indicating the outcome of the story. The first name is changed only in its meaning. <clears throat> the first name, remember, is Jezreel. It means to throw something away, but it can also be used as a farmer scatters seed and giving new life to a crop. And so God refers to this change when he says, I will plant her for myself in the land. The second name is changed by eliminating the, eliminating the negative. Lo Ruhamah will become Ruhamah because God is going to love and going to have pity on people once again. I will show my love to the one I have called not my loved one. And in the same way, lo, Ami will become Ami because God says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So it's kind of an illustration from the Old Testament of God's faithfulness. The second verse Paul quotes in Romans 9 comes from the end of of Hosea 1 and has the same effect as uh, Hosea 2.23 but it deals only with the change in the name Loami. Because it says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. That's in Hosea 1.10. So there was this true Israel within Israel. Just like there's true Christians within the people of God today in the church. And so Paul here has dealt with all these objections. And some people <clears throat> were kind of raising their fists saying, this, this isn't right. And so he gives several illustrations of, of, of loving uh, uh, certain individuals even before the earth was, was here. Um, he says in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That shows God's divine prerogative. He talks about Pharaoh being raised up and hardening his heart. <clears throat> And so, you know, you can't point your finger at God and say, well, this is how I am. No, you're that way anyway. And so we've been looking at that. But this morning, I want us to focus on the vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy. Who are these vessels of mercy? Because Paul brings us back, really, to the wonder of the gospel by reminding us that God is gracious and merciful towards us. In verse 24 there, he says, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. See, that's Paul's theme here. And it also ties back to the question that that God's word has not failed. And so it's something that we need to focus on (coughs) this morning. And he shows that even, (coughs) even though there are many physical descendants of Israel... God has promised only to to save a remnant while bringing judgment on the rest in verses 27 and 28. You can see that. As Isaiah also foretold, if God had not been gracious to leave Israel with a spiritual seed, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally wiped out. And that's clearly not the case. Now, this would come as a surprise to many Jews, and that's who was reading Paul's letter here. Even Jews who became Christians would be surprised at Paul's teaching because they thought they were the beneficiary, the only beneficiary of God's promises simply because of their physical birth as a Jew. But Paul here is establishing that God's promise to save his chosen people has not failed. He's like, hey, I'm still going to save some of these Jews because he has prepared vessels of mercy, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And the Jews at the time would go, well, wait a minute, the Gentiles, really? So it comes down, can we trust God to keep his word? And, and I want to focus basically on our remaining time together, basically five points dealing with God's mercy and our salvation. Five points that really kind of outline the truths about our salvation. The first one is this. Salvation is from God's great mercy and his sovereign effectual call, not from anything in us. 
Notice what he says there in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, those who will be saved is what the vessels of mercy is, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then he adds in verse 24, he says, even us whom he has called. Well, where did he call them from, Paul? Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Salvation doesn't have anything to do with something within us. You're not saved because you were born in America. You're not saved because you were born in a Christian family. You're not saved because you were Jewish or you're Muslim or you're this or you're that. You're not saved because of that. You're saved because God extended his mercy to you. And in his sovereignty, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He called you. That word called takes us all the way back to chapter 8, verse 28. Remember this? Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. And he goes on there, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal. If God calls you, you will one day stand before him in glory. It's not up to you. It's up to God. And whenever... The Bible uses the word call. You have to understand and put it in its context. Even in verse 11, there, chapter 9, it says, So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who, what? Calls. The entire book of Romans really focuses on this point. It emphasizes that God, not man, is the primary force behind salvation. Both pagan Gentiles and religious Jews were all under God's righteous wrath. Under God's righteous condemnation. Just like we all are under God's righteous condemnation. The Bible says that there's no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means there's no goodness in you. Romans chapter 3 told us that none seek after God. Jesus said the only way you're going to seek after God is if he first draws you. If he first gives you the ability to open the eyes of unbelief. And so think of it this way. God would not be unjust to just leave everybody go to hell. He would be totally within his right and within his justice to say, you know what, I'm not going to save anybody. But in his great love, in his great mercy, in his grace, he sent his own son to bear the penalty that we deserve. We deserve to go to hell. And God said, you know what, I'm not going to let it happen that way for everybody. I'm going to save some. And that's where the question, why me? God doesn't leave his sovereign purpose, beloved, up to the choices of sinful people. You may think you have a choice. You may think you have rights. and You, have, you don't have anything when you come before a holy God who's sovereign. Because verse 18, as we went over it, look at verse 18, chapter 9. It says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's work. It's not ours. He initiates his mercy towards some by his effectual call through the gospel. And that word call, as I was saying earlier, is used two different ways in scripture. The general call of the gospel goes out to everybody. It goes out to the entire world. You see that in the gospels. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. Jesus says, many are what? Called, but few are chosen. He says it in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 28 of Matthew. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is that? That's a general call. 
But the general call does not save you. (laughs) The general call is not an effectual call. Why? Because as sinners, we are dead. We are completely dead. We are completely sinful. We couldn't make the right decision if if our eternity counted on it. And so when you come to the New Testament in the epistles, in the gospels, the word call is used generally as a general call. But when you come to the epistles, that word call, meaning the letters after the gospels, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all those letters that Paul wrote, well, that word call always refers to God's effectual call. It always accomplishes God's purpose. Well, what's the purpose? To give life to somebody who is spiritually dead so that they can willingly respond to the call of the gospel. I mean, think about it when Jesus was healing people, when he was raising people from the dead. Take Lazarus, for example. Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, and what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. What did that call do? He called upon Lazarus to respond. That call imparted life so that Lazarus could actually get up, come to life, begin to breathe again, and respond to the call. That was a God thing. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't in there thinking, oh, I hope Jesus hurry up and get here so I can get out of this stinky tomb. No, he was dead. And God imparted new life into him. Now, when Lazarus' body was in there and the call was made, Lazarus wasn't laying there on the slab thinking, you know what? I don't want to be raised from the dead. Right now, really, Jesus? You can't force me against my free will to come out of here. I'm not going to come. That's not what happened. Rather, when Jesus imparted life into Lazarus, what happened? He was willing. And he gladly came forth out of that tomb. It's a good picture of our salvation, isn't it? In the same way, God's effectual call, his call upon our lives, a call to salvation, does not violate our will. As I've said many times, nobody's going to go to heaven going, I don't want to go, God. No, you have to go. I chose you. Oh, please don't take me to hell. I want to go to hell. That's not going to happen. Rather, his life-giving power makes us willing to respond. He gives us life and we respond to the gospel for the first time. The fact that we were not left in our own sin as vessels of wrath, but rather called as vessels of mercy, shows us that we owe everything to God's great mercy. And you know what? That should cause us to bow our knees and humble ourselves and fill us every day with gratitude, saying, man, praise God that he saved me. I don't know why he did, but praise God he did. So that's the first thing. Our salvation is a result of God's great mercy, his sovereign, effectual call, not anything within us. Secondly, salvation brings us into a personal relationship with the living God. We read here in the text that these people were were not his people, where now they are his people, Formerly, they were not the beloved, but now they are the beloved. In verse 25 and 26, he says, Now we are called sons and daughters of the living God. These are warm, personal, loving relationship terms with God. Our relationship with God is not some cold, callous relationship. The Bible says he knows everything about us. He knows the number of hairs on our head or the lack of hair on our head, whatever. He knows everything about us. Okay? And so it's so, so important to realize that. And behind this text from Hosea is that moving story of heartache and grief. Where Hosea is told to go marry this prostitute. But in the end, it turns into tears of joy. God told Hosea to marry and have children by a prostitute an object lesson to the unfaithful nation that had committed flagrant adultery against the Lord. And even though he had the right to divorce her, he was not to divorce her because of her unfaithfulness, but to love her, to draw her back. And when you read that story in the Old Testament, that's the faithful love that God has for the Jews, for us, for everybody. Hosea obeyed 
And we saw the outcome. And God literally renamed those children to show that, you know what, something changed. God stepped into the picture. It's a moving picture of the power of God's grace to restore unfaithful people and bring them into relationship with God. Don't think you're a Christian because you deserve it. You know, that's the first question I always ask people that profess Christ. You know, start talking. and Oh, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? Tell me a little bit about that. Why do you think you're a Christian? The words that come out of their mouth after that can tell you right where they're at. Here, we were not the beloved, but now we are. Formerly, we were not his people, but now we are his chosen people. But you know what? That relationship takes time. I'm sure everybody here who got married, it took time to figure the relationship out. Granted, some of us are still working on it, but you know what? It's in the works, okay? It's no perfect marriage here today. Why? Because relationships take time. It takes time. It takes investment. There's ups. There's downs. Let me ask you this. That's just our relationship with our spouse or with our family members or with our kids or whatever, or friends. But think about your relationship with God. Are you taking time to maintain and deepen your most important relationship, that relationship with God? Or is God just an afterthought through the week and then, oh, yeah, I've got to go to church on Sunday? Oh, dust off that Bible and bring it. <laughs> are we reading his word? Are we, are we pouring ourselves into his word? Are we asking him to speak to our hearts every day? Do we get up in the morning and say, hey, God, not your will, but my will be done today? Or do we say, God, you know what? Not my will, but your will be done today. What is our attitude? That's all about a relationship. If you're in a relationship where it's just, you know, say your way or the highway, that's not a relationship. That's a train wreck. That's a disaster. That's misery. God wants us to know him better takes time. Thirdly, salvation extends to people from every type of background. Every type of background. This is the theme here in verse 24. Not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. I mean, are you praising God today that God just didn't save Jewish people? I mean, I'd be lost forever. No, he, 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 he's, he, his salvation is available for all. It's not a matter of natural birth. See, this is where the Jews got it all wrong. They thought, well, if you're born as a Jew, then you know, you're under God's special hand of favor and you, know, you just get a free pass. No, that's not the way it works. He says, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. It's not a matter of natural birth. It's not even a matter of religious heritage. It's not a matter of upbringing. I talk to people all the time. Say, what's your faith background? Oh, I'm Christian. Really? Yeah, I was raised in a Christian family. Oh. I've been a Christian as long as I can think. I remember I was probably just a baby. I was born a Christian. You were born a Christian. (laughs) Red flag. You know, got a problem here. Let's talk. doesn't depend on any of that. It's available to all no matter what their background. And in verse 25 to 29, Paul refers to the Old Testament to show that he wasn't making this up. That what he was saying was written previously about God's wrath and God's mercy. Especially about his mercy extending not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. And remember, the Jews despised the Gentiles. So the first point here under this heading is a pagan background does not exclude you from God's misery. Or from God's mercy. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Misspoke. A pagan background does not exclude you, just seeing if you're listening, from God's mercy. (laughs) See, that's the greatest news of all for all of us, right? That we don't have to be Jewish to be saved. Hosea's words in their original context refer to the ten northern tribes of Israel, but here Paul applies it to the Gentiles. Also, it's applied that way over, and you can turn over there if you want, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, and read that little verse. 1 Peter 2, 10. Paul saw that Israel, 
in apostasy had been cast off as God's people. They weren't acting the way they should, so God said, you know what, I'm done. For all purposes, they became like Gentiles. They became like all the pagan nations around them. And you see that happening, and they never learned their lesson. You know, they move into a new area, and they become, they start to intermarry, and they become like the pagans around them. That's just a problem they had. But God, in his great mercy, it says, brought them back so that, again, it could be said of them that they were his people. And see, here's where Paul applies this to the church, which includes Gentiles. Um, perhaps you were raised in a, in a, in a uh, Christian home. And you had all the goodness of people praying with you and reading the Bible and going to church. Well, you know what? Maybe some of you were raised in a non-Christian home where you didn't have those privileges. Um, you didn't have any understanding of how to live uh, a pleasing life before God. Perhaps your background is, is filled with all kinds of horrible sins. See, the good news is, beloved, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how pagan your background is. You can experience God's mercy and his forgiveness if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Trust him to save you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcisions by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, look at in Christ, verse 13, Ephesians 2, but now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both Jew Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What did God do? God took two people groups, Jews, Gentiles. Suddenly, that's it. And he said, you know what? No longer. In Christ, there's, there's one. You know, you want to see that in real life? Go over to Israel. Go over to Palestine. You walk around. And when you, when you see Palestinians and Jews together, total harmony, total peace. What do they have in common? Christ. Christ. They're both believers. Incredible. Some of, the, some of the most wonderful people we met when we were over there were Palestinian people who came to Christ. And we get off the bus and Hawking would make them open up their shops and he'd say, bring lots of money because they're poor, they're under a hardship and we need to go help them out. And we'd go up there and buy all their goods. You know, don't believe the lie that it's got to be one or the other. In Christ, God pulls us together. So background, pagan background doesn't matter. The religious background, second point, does not automatically include you in God's mercy. Just like a pagan background doesn't exclude you from God's mercy, just because you have a religious background doesn't include you. And that's what he says there in verses 27 to 29. Because many Jews in Paul's day thought, hey, you know what, I'm good because I'm a Jew. <laughs> got to give me a pass. But as Paul has already said once, being a Jew outwardly doesn't make you right with God. You must experience the new birth and have God change your heart. 
being a child of the flesh counts for nothing. You must become a child of the promise, he says in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 9. There in verse 27, first word in that, in that, that verse should be but. Because Paul is contrasting Israel with the Gentiles. Remember, Hosea deals with the Gentiles. Isaiah deals with the Jews. And he cites Isaiah 10.22, Though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. The point is that the Jews should not rely on being part of Abraham's many descendants. You know, the kids sing that song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You know, we go through that whole thing. What Paul's saying, I don't care. <laughs> you know, that doesn't matter. If you're, you, you can be born in the lineage of Abraham himself. It doesn't make you right with God. So verse 29 cites Isaiah 1, 9, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us to literally seed, we would have become like Sodom and have been and resembled Gomorrah. Sabaoth means hosts, angelic hosts. It emphasizes God's sovereign authority over all of his creation. The point is that if the sovereign God had not intervened to preserve a remnant, the entire nation would have been destroyed long ago. They would have just been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what? We can say the same thing about the church today. You know, there's a lot of people, oh, the churches are dying, churches are dead, don't, you know. You know what? In a way, they're true. There are a lot of dead churches. But you know what? God is preserving a remnant. God is preserving those who are faithful to his word, those who are willing to be faithful to him in their lives each and every day. And if it wasn't for God's protection and his power and his sovereignty over us, we would all be destroyed. So just because you had that heritage, whether it's pagan or religious, that doesn't really guarantee you anything. You still have to come to Christ like everybody else. So because salvation is from God's great mercy and his sovereign effectual call, not from anything in us, salvation brings us into that personal relationship and extends to people from every type of background. Fourth, salvation delivers us from God's inescapable, thorough judgment. That's what he says in verse 28. Isaiah 10:23 For the law will execute the Lord will execute his word on earth thoroughly and quickly. Don't think that judgment is not coming. Don't think that people are going to get a pass. It probably here emphasizes that God will bring judgment on those who claim to be his people. Emmanuel read from Matthew this morning. There's going to be many people one day that stand before Jesus Christ, stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we done all these good things? And he's going to say, you know what? Depart from me because I don't know who you are. I never knew you. Not that I knew you at one time and and now I forgot about you or you did something bad and that causes me. No, I never, ever knew you. And that word has an intimate knowledge. Salvation delivers us from God's judgment. And when that judgment comes, beloved, just, you know, I just want you to understand it's, it's going to be inescapable. You know, you're not going to go and run to the hills with your friends and have a party and, and God's judgment is going to fall on the city. No. One day God's judgment will, will touch everyone. And only those who are vessels of his mercy will escape. The point here is that, you know, we need to, to emphasize God's love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. That's true. But we also need to focus on his righteous judgment and his wrath. I mean, I hear Christians all the time say, well, I don't, I don't worship. My God is not a God of wrath and judgment. My God's a God of love and mercy. Well, that's fine if that's what you want to think. But you don't know the God of the Bible. If you're excusing your sins and claiming that you're the object of his love because you belong to the church, you may be in for a rude, irreversible shock one day. You must respond to God's call 
of mercy by repenting of your sins. And you may be part of that professing people of God who were part of his remnant. The last thing here, five, salvation brings us into a racially diverse spiritual family of God's people. I mean, just look around the room. Okay, we got people from all kinds of countries here. That's just the way it is. There's no, there's no, you know, distinction here. And that's what he says in verse 24. God is calling to himself a people, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ, you, the Gentiles who were formerly far off, are brought near. We read that. So it's so, so important. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. In heaven one day, there will be a great multitude from every nation, it says, and all tribes and peoples and tongues crying out, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, there's not going to be any racism in heaven. It's not even going to be an issue. It's going to be a multiracial, multicultural, multinational place. And there's no place for any kind of racism within the local church today. Michael W. Smith one day wrote a, he wrote a song years ago called Colorblind. And it's just a great song. And it talks about, you know what, in the church we, we don't even make distinctions. The church should reflect the racial diversity of the community where it exists. And I'm glad to say our church does just that. So we need to love each other and learn from each other as a testimony of God's grace. We're blended together as a family because God has called us all from different backgrounds, different places together. But I come back to my original question. Does the gospel, the good news that God saved you from sin and judgment by his great love and his mercy and his grace, does that cause your heart to rejoice and flood your soul with gratitude? If perhaps your appreciation for the gospel has grown a bit dull, consider these words from a Puritan preacher, Thomas Goodwin. He lived in the 1600, 1600 to 1680. He wrote this to his son. When I was threatening to become cold in my ministry, and when I felt Sabbath morning coming in my heart not filled with amazement at the grace of God, or when I was making ready to dispense the Lord's Supper, do you know what I used to do? I used to take a turn up and down among the sins of my past life. And I always came down again with a broken and contrite heart, ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. I do not think that I ever went up the pulpit stair that I did not stop for a moment at the foot of it and take a turn up and down among the sins of my past years. I do not think that I ever planned a sermon that I did not take a turn around my study table and look at the sins of my youth and of all my life down to the present. In many a Sabbath morning, when my soul had been cold and dry for the lack of prayer during the week, a turn up and down in my past life before I went into the pulpit always broke the hardness of my heart. It made me close with the gospel for my own soul before I began to preach. See, we don't ever want to get over the wonder of God's mercy to you in the gospel. Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather here in this place, freedom country that we have. And Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts for our communion time. Lord, the word says that we should examine our own selves. Before we come to this time, this table is open to all those who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, as the elements will be passed around, you can take uh, the the, uh, cracker and then wait and we'll pray. And then take the juice and wait and we'll pray and we'll partake together. But this this table is open to all those who know Christ. And maybe there's Christians here today or maybe there's something going on in their life. There's time now even to reflect on that and come to you and to repent. Because we don't want to partake of this table in an unworthy manner. 
And so, Lord, we just uh, pray that you would prepare our hearts, even through the song that we sing now. We ask that you would bless our time. If there's any here who this morning have yet to put their faith, their trust in you, to heed the effectual call of salvation upon their life, Lord, I pray that this morning might be the morning they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me from my sin. I'm tired of doing the same thing over and over again. And the burden of sin that I'm carrying is way too much. I want to give that over to you. I want to ask you for forgiveness. I want to confess my sins to you. That can be done even here in the quietness of this this time. Your heart before God. I pray that he would draw you to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand together. We're going to have a song and then we'll have the men come and distribute the elements.